good to be here this this morning and to uh, once again speak a message that I hope will be of comfort and of interest and that it will not just be information but that it leads to transformation. Uh, we spoke the last time about getting hell out, getting hell out and today we're going to look at another topic which is very very important for us as Christians and then as Seventh-day Adventists. So if, if you grew up in, in some form of church or uh, churchianity, then uh, you probably heard of the story of Jonah. I don't think it's moving along here. But uh, what do you know Jonah for? The VeggieTales version. Right? Someone gets swallowed by a, a big fish. Yeah. Get swallowed by a big fish. I don't think it's moving. Maybe you can just check the IT team if they can see what's moving along. But Jonah is more than about a big fish. It's a story that's, that's so much more. And uh, you've probably read this book many times. You don't pay attention to it that much. But this book is it's, it's packed with a punch. It's not a children's story by any means. Because children won't be able to grasp the actual enormity of the message of Jonah. You see, you have to be more of an adult to understand the themes of Jonah. And so Jonah is about religious hypocrisy. It's about exposing spiritual apathy and the devastating effects that it has on us and other people. It speaks about the ways that God can use pain and, and suffering as a measure to, to wake us up, as a divine mercy. And there's also the themes of, of judgment. You've got divine judgment. You've got divine repentance as well. And you try and explain this to a child and they will just not understand. If I try and explain this to my two-year-old, he'll just look at me. Because this story is meant for adults. Right? All the scripture, it's, it's about revealing God's character to his people. And that's the purpose of the book of Jonah. Not to entertain children, but to reveal who God is. God's purposes and His character. And what God's doing in the world. And so, when you look at Jonah chapter 4, this is the conclusion of the story. It's a story about a ridiculous sunburned man. He's sitting on the east of Nineveh. And he wants to die. He wants to die. He would rather die than live with a God like Yahweh. And so how does this speak a new word to us today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you'll help us to understand your word, what it meant for them and what it means for us today. May it be, O Lord, that the Holy Spirit will move and that we will be moved to action. May we draw closer to you, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So remember the big storyline, Jonah chapter 4? Leave it open there, whether it's on your tablet or your phone, or you have the, the bundled book. You've got this religious man of God, he's a prophet, and he runs. He does a lot of running. And he hates God, and he runs from God in the opposite direction. And so it leads him to eat bottom. In fact, in the book of Jonah, the word down is repeated so many times. So he's supposed to go up to Nineveh, but he goes down to, to Joppa. Then he goes down to the harbor. He goes down into the boat. He goes down to the bottom level of the boat. 
And so this big storm comes and he's woken up and everyone is in a frenzy. And so he decides to let them know that he's the result of the storm. They throw him overboard. He goes down into the ocean. He goes down to the bottom of the ocean. He goes down into the belly of the fish. And so he can't go further down from there, right? He needs to, to go up. And so this swallowing of this fish, it wakes him up momentarily. And he agrees to fulfill the commission to go and preach against the sin of, of Nineveh. And so he goes, are we together? We all caught up. We know the story. So Jonah chapter 3 verse 4. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. And so he preaches this sermon. How many words is that sermon in English? It's only eight words. Eight words. And in the original language, Hebrew, it's only five words. And so you'd be so happy if the speaker comes and he only says five words and we're done. Right? So Jonah preaches this five-word sermon, and then what happens? The whole city repents it repents and then it turns to god and so if you're a prophet from israel just think about this this is a great line on your cv right you you preached five words not even a whole day and a whole city and all the animals also get converted and so he's preaching five words there's a radical transformation but what is jonah's reaction to this is he happy he's upset Look at the last sentence of Jonah chapter 3 verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from the evil ways, he relented and he did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. And so relents mean that God forgives. He forgives them. He doesn't destroy them. And any other prophet would have been like mic drop, mission impossible, so what? Five words, half day, and I've done the job. And so God's grace is shown, his reputation is honored. And what is Jonah's response to this? Is he happy? Is he happy? Is he rejoicing? He's ticked. He's livid with anger. Look at his response to this in Jonah chapter 4 verse 1. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry and he prayed to the Lord. Now that's good news for me because it means that you can be angry and pray. So Jonah's like, this is not supposed to happen. This is very, very wrong. And he becomes angry and he prays in anger to God. And when you see the word Lord in capital letters, it's the most holy name of God. It's Yahweh. And so he lets Yahweh have it big time. And this is the category of prayer that you find in the book of Psalms, where people are, are angry and they're lamenting and they let God have it. And so God is gracious because Jonah's alive, even while doing this. And so Jonah's got clenched teeth and fists and he's praying he's hot with anger and what does he say in Jonah chapter 4 verse 2 he prayed to Yahweh isn't this what I said Yahweh when I was still back at home this is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish so let's do some geography quickly so you remember that Israel is by the Mediterranean Sea and which direction is Nineveh it's east right it's east and so Nineveh is 550 miles east, that's 885 kilometers. And Tarshish is 2,500 miles, that's nearly 5,000 kilometers in the opposite direction. And so Tarshish is as far west as you can go right, from Israel. It's on the coast of, of Spain. 
And so, why does Jonah flee? He gives us the answer. Does he flee because he's scared of the Ninevites? You've heard the story. You know how brutal the Ninevites were. When the Assyrians came to your city and conquered you, they would decapitate people, stack their heads up in the form of a triangle in front of the gate of the city to let people know that the Assyrians were here. They would take babies and bash them against the walls. They would impale people alive on wooden stakes. These people were very, very cruel, right? Very cruel. But as Jonah say, I ran because I'm scared of them, of what they might do to me. What does he say? Verses 2 and 3. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, that you are slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Is Jonah running because he's scared of the Ninevites? No. He's running because he hates who God is. He doesn't like God's character. He says, this is why, isn't this what I said? When I was still in my country, this is why I fled. Because you are a gracious and compassionate God. You are slow to anger. You are bounding loving kindness. And you love to relent from bringing calamity. And so you can see that Jonah is angry. He's, he's fuming. He's livid. And this is ridiculous to us who read the story. Because how are you angry at this? And so look at the description that he gives for God. He says, you are gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. Do you recognize these words from anywhere else? Right, this is, this is in the New Testament, John 3.16 is the most quoted verse, most well known. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so in the Old Testament, this is the most repeated description of God that you will find. And so you find this in the book of Exodus where you find that Jonah is actually quoting God's words and throws it in his face right here. So you go to Exodus chapter 34 verse 6. And so it says here, And he passed in front of Moses, that's God, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and, and faithfulness. And so in Exodus 34, it's a story about how the Israelites... They're sitting in front of a mountain, and it's called Mount Sinai. And God has given them the Ten Commandments. And so the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. And the second commandment is, you shall not make for yourself any carved image, any likeness of what is in heaven above, earth beneath, or the sea below. Right? Because I'm a jealous God. Right? And so the Israelites receive the commandments. And God makes a covenant with them. He says, will you follow me? Will you obey these commandments and live righteously? And they all agree. And so what is the very next thing that they do after agreeing to follow God? To not have any other gods before him. Not to make a carved image of any likeness in heaven or earth or sea below. What is the first thing that they do? They make a golden calf, right? Because Moses is on the mountain. He's been there for 40 days. The cloud of presence is there. God is there. They know this is the cloud that's been leading them by day and the pillar of fire by night. And so God's presence is right there. Moses is gone for 40 days. Someone comes up with a bright idea. I want to move that we make a golden calf. Seconded discussion. Everyone agrees. And who forms this calf? It's the high priest, Aaron. 
He takes all the earrings and he fashions it. And so he makes this and he says, this is the God who led you out of, of Egypt. Right. And so this is crazy because they have this sexual fertility ritual happening right here in the presence of God. In his presence. And so God says to Moses on the mountain, see what the people are doing. They've just covenanted to obey me, but they do this. I'm going to destroy them. And Moses, the mediator, stands up and he says, God, please remember your promise to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob, and that you will bless the world through this line. And so God relents from bringing disaster upon them. And Moses is amazed at God's grace and his compassion. And he says to God, Lord, let me see your face. Let me see your glory. And what does God say? No man can see my face and live. But what I'm going to do is, I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock. And as I hide you, I'm going to walk past you and you'll see my back. And so as God walks past Moses, he says these things. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and, and faithfulness. And so Jonah takes that description, that incident, that quote of God himself, and he throws those words in God's face. Do you see this? He says, I knew you were like this. You've always been like this. You've been like this since day one. And what's so funny is that if God was not like this, Jonah would not be there. They would have been destroyed right there at the mountain. But because God is like this, Jonah is alive today. But Jonah is so angry that he can't think rationally. He gets hot with anger. He says, I knew you were going to do this. You love to forgive people who don't deserve it. You love to do this kind of thing. I knew this was going to happen. That's why I ran. Not because of the Ninevites, but because I don't like you. I don't like you. You made me come here in the first place. Remember, he tries to run. Everywhere he tries to run. But God brings him back every time. You brought me here. And you read this and you see that Jonah's throwing hate mail God's way. He's, he's criticizing him. And God is too gracious for him. God is too nice. God is too forgiving. And they don't deserve it. And then Jonah loses his mind. And very few of us would sympathize with him right here because he wouldn't exist if God was not like that. And it's laughable and it's ridiculous to read this story. But Jonah is about exposing the dark, scandalous side of God's grace. It's scandalous because when I think of what type of person I was, who I am, how sinful I was, where I came from, my baggage, and I come to Jesus, and I say, Lord, please forgive me. And I mean it, and he forgives me. It's like I never did that before. It didn't exist. And I'm so happy that God forgives and treats me like I don't deserve. But the other side of God's grace is that God is not just like that with me. You see, God is the same way with my enemy. The same way. And then you've got this internal struggle where you argue that I deserve your grace and mercy, but not them. Look at what they did to me. And then you list all the reasons why they don't deserve God's grace and mercy. Anyone like Jonah today? Anyone like me? Like his motivation for criticizing God 
it's very understandable when you think of it that way. If you and I were in the same situation, we would probably say the same thing. So let's make an example closer to home. Amy Beale was a researcher at the University of Western Cape. And she was out in the townships and she was attending rallies during a very difficult transition period in our history. Mandela had just been released from prison. And as a nation, we were one year away from democracy. One year away. And so she was here from the States to come and help and do what she could for this process. And so what happened was she attended one of these rallies in Guguletu on the 25th of August, 1993. And when she left the rally, a mob of black young youth thought that she was an enemy. And she said, there's the enemy. And so what they did was they stopped her car and they pulled her out of the car and they killed her brutally. They viewed her as a settler, unaware of her background, to help foster in democracy. And four men were convicted of a murder. Four men. And they were sentenced to 18 years in prison. 18 years. And so what happened was, as these men came before the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, they had written a letter to appeal to Amy's parents to be present to grant them amnesty. To grant them amnesty. And so the letter was sent, and her parents came to South Africa, to the TRC. And they spoke in favor of these men. In favor of these men. Two years later, two of them are working in a foundation. That's called the Amy Beale Foundation. And they're working hand in hand with the parents of someone that they killed brutally. Brutally. And the spot where she died today is called the spot of hope. Because the foundation that they set up in her name, it's to put up barriers against violence. And so her father, Amy's father, Peter, passed away in 2002. But since then, his wife, Linda, and these men, those who killed her daughter, continue to work together to share one simple message. One simple message. That forgiveness is possible. And today, these two men who still work there, they call... Amy's mom, her grandmother, Makulu. And two years after this story, people were interested in this and they wanted to write books about this and, and make movies about this. And so one screenwriter went to visit Amy's parents at home in, in the U.S. and they interviewed them. And this is what the screenwriter wrote down. I sat in the room in their home and I went through everything that they had of Amy's, her journals, her projects, what she was working on, her letters. When I was done, the Beals asked me what I thought. And she said, she told them, I think Amy would have forgiven these men. And look at what her mom's words are to people who question, why are they doing this? How can they forgive these people who killed her in such a brutal way? And she said the following, I've grown fond of these young men. They like my own kids. It may sound strange, but I tend to think there's a little bit of Amy's spirit in them. Some people think we are supporting criminals, but the foundation that we started in her name is all about preventing crime among youth. It's what Desmond Tutu calls Ubuntu, 
to choose to forgive rather than demand retribution. A belief that my humanity is inextricably caught up in yours. I can't look at myself as a victim. It diminishes me as a person. And Easy and Tobacco don't see themselves as killers. They didn't set out to kill Amy Bill. But Easy has told me that it's one thing to reconcile what happened as a political activist, but quite another to reconcile it in your heart. And so this story is amazing about how people can forgive people who've murdered the ones that they love the most in this world. And not just forgive them, but continue to work with them up until this day. And of course, they've had their detractors, people who send them hate mail. How dare you forgive them? What kind of parents are you? How can you forgive your daughter's killers? It's, it's as if those words of forgiveness were spoken for the first time in human history. It's like Jesus never said those words on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. It's when you think of forgiveness and love as a sign of mental weakness instead of spiritual strength. So you know people, you know we, we name our daughters grace. We sing songs about grace, amazing grace. And it's this beautiful thing, but there's this real scandalous side about grace. Because God's grace includes people that we hate. It includes people that we despise. It includes people that have wronged us. It includes people that we don't deserve God's forgiveness. And it's really disturbing that God is like this. And this whole grace thing, you know, this is what Jonah 4 is about. It's not so crazy that Jonah comes across as ridiculous because he's got the right motivations. But he's critiquing God because of who he is. And it's very understandable. And when you read the rest of chapter 4, God is going to try three times to wake Jonah up from his hate and to understand God's grace in a new way. So let's dive in. And the Lord said, Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? And so verse 4, God is giving him a plea. God's trying to talk to him like a psychologist, right? Psychiatrist. Is it right for you? Let's talk about this. Is it right for you to be angry about my grace? Because you're angry that I show grace to the Ninevites. Is it legitimate for you to be angry, Jonah? And what is Jonah's response? And I love this. What does he say in your Bible? What is Jonah's response to God's question in verse 4? He just straight up stonewalls God. He gives God the hand. I don't want to talk about this. Right? And he's just so rude. I mean, it's the creator of heaven and earth asking him a question, reasoning with a sinner. And he doesn't even respond to God. One of the most successful prophets in Israel's history. Jonah ignores God, and it's not the first time he ignores. God says, go right. He says, I'm going to go left. And so what does he do in verse 5? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. And there he made himself a shelter. He sat in its shade and he waited to see what would happen to the city. Right. So do you think that Jonah came with building material on that ship? 
When they threw him overboard, he probably lost everything because they threw all the cargo over to try and save the ship. And so he's just got his tunic, his gown. Does he have building material when he comes to the shore? No. Jonah is so angry that he goes to find stuff to build, to make himself a shelter. And he waits to see what's going to happen to the city. And so God's like, is it right for you to be angry? I don't want to talk about it. Here's the hand. And he leaves. And he goes outside, makes the shelter, which means that he's going to be there for a while. Right? He's setting up a shelter. And what does he want to happen to the city? Does it sound good? What do we know for sure Jonah wants to happen to the city? Destroyed. He wants fire from heaven. Right? He wants what happened when Elijah was on the mount. Carmel with those prophets. He wants Sodom and Gomorrah. He wants it to be totally destroyed. And that's why Jonah's five-word sermon is so amazing. Right? When you look at the five words... We're going to come back to this because there's more to the eye than what's there. There's a lot more. So Jonah's angry for many reasons. Not just because God is gracious, but because God's actually played a trick on him. Right? So before you stone me, let's see what the Bible's saying. God has played a really brilliant trick on him. Go back to chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3. Flip the page or scroll. Go back to chapter 3. Remember this five-word sermon. What was his five-word sermon in Nineveh? Jonah chapter 3, verse 4. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days, and Nineveh will be what? Destroyed. And that's it. And it's very odd, because he was commissioned to preach against the wickedness of the city. And when you're commissioned to preach against the wickedness of the city, you have to list the sins that the city are committing. Right, that's the wickedness you're preaching against. Does he say who he represents? No. Does he say what their sins are? No. Jonah is trying to sabotage God, right? Give these people as little information as possible so that they won't make the right decision. Right. We together. He's very, very angry with God. Very angry. And then he's sent to preach, but he doesn't preach. He doesn't even mention God. He doesn't mention who he's representing. It's very strange. And this is the best part for me. Veggie Tales won't explain this. The last word of Jonah's sermon is, you have 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Who's got destroyed in the Bible in front of you? Destroyed, one. Who's got overthrown? Overthrown. Who's got overturned? One overturned. All right, so three different words. And this is interesting. So 40 more days and Nineveh will be, in Hebrew, overthrown, destroyed, overturned. Say it with me. Hapak. Hapak. 40 more days and Nineveh will be? Hapak. Okay. Afrikaans. 40 more days and Nineveh will be Hapak. You gaan Hapak kry. Right? You gaan Hapak kry. So Hapak, like many words in English, the meaning changes depending on the context that it's used. Okay? That's why you've got three different words in our Bibles for the same word. Hapak. Okay. So I could say, I destroyed my car. Is that good or bad? That's bad, right? I totaled it. It's bad. But I could also say, I destroyed the world record for the most number of gluten patties eaten at one Sabbath lunch sitting. Is that good or bad? That's good for me, right? That's good for me. So, so that's awesome. So it's the same word, different context, different meaning. Are we together? 
right? This is how language works. So the basic meaning of a puck is overturned, to turn something over, okay? So let's look at Hosea chapter 7 verse 8. I've got it on the screen for you as well. Hosea 7 verse 8. It states, Israel is like a piece of baked bread. And man, I think it's bad enough being prepared, like being compared to a piece of baked bread, right? But Israel is like a piece of baked bread that has not been hapak, turned over. Okay, so what happened to the bread? It got burnt, right? And so it needs to be thrown out. Very clever. Is that good or bad? Bad hapak, good hapak. Thrown away? Bad, right. Now let's go to Lamentations 4 verse 6. The sin of my people is greater than that of Sodom. And Sodom was hapak in a moment without a hand to help. Good or bad? Bad. What happened to Sodom? Totally flattened, right? Fire from heaven, sulfur, brimstone. But then you go to Psalms 30 verse 11. God, you have hapak my grief and mourning into dancing. You've removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy. Good or bad? That's positive. That's good. Right. Now, this is what's brilliant. Which meaning do you think Jonah intends as he walks around Nineveh yelling those five words? Number one and two. Hapak. Yechanapakre. Right. Which meaning do you think God intends and what actually happens? Verse 3, verse 3. Remember, God says preach against the wickedness. He doesn't preach against the wickedness. Whose sermon is this? This is Jonah's sermon, right? So Jonah takes the sermon. He gives as little information as possible, trying to sabotage them and God. But God takes that bad thing and he overturns. And this is why it's funny to me, but why Jonah is upset. Because I said hapak, but you did a hapak. Same word, different meaning. And so Jonah is upset. Why didn't it hapak like I wanted it to? Why did you hapak it in your way? And so he tries a different strategy and it's prophetic sabotage, but God makes his purposes work. It's the same thing that happens in the book of Genesis, where Joseph's brothers try to derail the mission of God. And they sell him. And what's the last words of Jonah, of, of Joseph in the book of Genesis? Their father just died. Their brothers think he's going to take out his revenge on them. And he says to them, do not fear, my brothers. You meant this for evil. But God has meant this for good. Hapak, right? And so every time the patriarchs mess up, God takes that evil and he hapak, right? And so he does the same thing here with Jonah. Do you see why he's so angry? He's angry. And Jonah says, I'm going to sit here. I'm not going to answer you. I'm hoping you'll send the puck that I want you to send. And he's fuming and God comes to him a second time. Second time, but differently. And he tries to reason with him. Verse 6 of chapter 4. So Yahweh provided a leafy plant and he made it to grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant, right? This is the only time in the whole story where Jonah is not just happy, but extremely happy, right? Extreme anger to extreme happiness. 
you see this and so we don't know what plant it is but we know that he's happy about this plant he was so angry i want to die but now i'm very very happy but what happens to the plant does it last verse 7 but the next day god provided a little worm which chewed the plant so that it withered so notice the regression in chapter 1 god sends a huge storm and a huge fish then in chapter 4 a medium-sized plant that covers his head and then a small little worm you see the big talk didn't listen Jonah couldn't hear the storm he didn't listen to the big fish he didn't listen to this now is God is trying to whisper to him right getting closer and closer to him God is speaking to this man this hateful prophet and then verse 8 what happens next and when the Sun rose God provided a scorching what wind east why east where's Jonah sitting he's sitting on the east so God wants him to feel the wind first right the east is the gate to the city you're gonna feel this wind right so Jonah the Sun is blazing on Jonah's head that he grew faint his blood sugar drops low blood pressure he wanted to die and he said it would be better for me to die than to live and this is a comic feel to the story I'm so angry I want to die I'm so happy I want to die again and when I read this I just filter this through the time when I take Levi to clicks so I'm convinced that people who design these these stores they just want to make parents as unhappy as possible it's called pester power so they put the stuff that you need the most the furthest away in this in the store so you have to walk past all these other distractions hoping that they'll pester you and there's power in those pestering and that you'll give them what they want I mean it's bad when we go it's always bad you have a two-year-old son and then we get what we need and what does clicks have when you come to pay they've got these two walls right these two walls and so when we get there Levi's in the trolley and then he sees these walls and on the left side that day where I am there's magazines of people in scantily clad clothing let me put it that way and so I want to divert his attention from these and what does he see on this side it's a whole wall of sugar it's just a wall of sugar and so he's so happy that he grabs and he takes I'm so happy I'm so happy and I take it away from him I want to die I want to die and he takes from the other side again I'm so happy and I take it away I want to die I want to die and this is how I filter the story because there's just no good ending here and this is what happens I want to rather die than live with a God like you God gives him a leafy plant it's the best thing ever takes it away I want to die again and this is strange let's read verse 9 what happens next but God said to Jonah is it right for you to be angry about the plant and so Jonah gives God the hand the first time but now God adds to his first question is it right of you to be angry about the plant and so God tries a small plant tactic and this should have waken him up but what's Jonah's response second part of verse 9 it is he said and I'm so angry I wish I were dead and I'm like this man is beyond reason at this point it's just good to pack up your toys and go home but God doesn't give up he doesn't give up because of his character he's gracious he's compassionate he's slow to anger and he's abounding in loving kindness do you see God doing the same to him 
And this is the third time God's going to try and wake him up, the last time in verse 10. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant. You didn't even plant it. Though you did not tend it or make it grow. And you've got this emotional attachment to it. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. Verse 11. Should I not have concern for something more significant, like the great city of Nineveh, full of human beings, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals or cows that you may have there. And this is a great story, but what is Jonah's response? What does he say to God? Verse 11. Nothing. And so, right then from the left. And so God, God is trying to expose how foolish Jonah's anger is at his enemy. And how foolish it is for him to be angry at God for showing grace to his enemy. And then God tries another way to help him to see how ridiculous it is with a plant. And Jonah's super happy. And then the plant dies and God exposes his anger over a plant that was there for one day. And it's gone. And for the first time, Jonah's happy. He cares about something other than himself, not the people, but the plant. And it provides comfort. And then God's working that corner of his heart. He's concerned for this plant. And he says, if you really feel something for this plant, should I not feel something greater for 120,000 people and their animals? Why the animals? Because in chapter 2 and 3, the cows also have sackcloth on, so they also repent. Right? So God saves the animals. And so what does this mean? They don't know their right hand from their left. Are they blind? You can't have a whole city of blind people. Right? They can see. They can see. But they must guide it. Because this is a Hebrew phrase which refers to sheep. Sheep always get lost. Right? They cannot tell. They must guide it. They don't know which way. They need a shepherd to lead them. And I sent you to preach against their wickedness to show them the better way. But you took that commission, you made up your own sermon to try and destroy them, and you are so hateful, and now you hate me. And these people don't know which way is right. You must go and show them, but you don't want to. You want them to die. And this is, this is quite crazy. You know, God is, is speaking to a hateful prophet. And so while you wait for Jonah to respond to God's question, the book just ends. Right. And I want to know what he said. And what is this book actually about? This book is not about Jonah's response. It's about you and me. It's about how God relates to his people. And the real question we should be asking is, how would I respond to God's question in verse 11? Because that's what's happening right here. You know, I just finished a, a book called The Happiest Man on Earth. Eddie Yaku, Abraham Solomon Yakubovitz. But he goes by Eddie, Eddie Yaku. And uh, he was a survivor of several German concentration camps during World War II. Right? He wrote of his wartime experiences and then he immigrated to Australia. And his book is called The Happiest Man on Earth. And it was published when he was 100 years old. Still alive. He wrote it. 
and it became an immediate bestseller. And some of you might have seen the TEDx talk that he gave in 2019. He died at the age of 101, October 2021. And it's an amazing story. It's packed with, with so much pain and horror as it documents just how terrible the Holocaust was. Right? He had so much reason to hate the same people who he grew up with, who would torture and kill for no reason except for hating. And so I picked up this book and, and because I wanted to know how does someone who experiences that call himself the happiest man on earth. And this is what he, he writes, these few lines towards the end of the book. Page 197. 75 years ago, in the days after the war, I learned of a Nazi being held prisoner in Belgium for his war crimes. And I arranged to see him. I asked him, why? Why would you do this? And he couldn't answer. He started shaking and crying. He was less than a man, just a shadow of one. I almost felt sorry for him. He did not look evil. He looked like he was already dead. And my question remained unanswered. The older I get, the more I think, why? I cannot help but think about it as if it were an engineering problem that I could solve. If I have a machine, I can examine it, diagnose the problem find out what's wrong, and then fix it. The only answer I can find is hate. Hate is the beginning of a disease like cancer. It may kill your enemy, but it will destroy you in the process too. You see, Jonah is this ridiculous representation of people who cannot grasp the scandal of God's grace. That God loves my enemy just as much as he loves me. And this is very hard to preach. It's very hard to hear, especially when you have a fresh wound from your enemy. Fresh wound. And you struggle with issues of forgiveness. You read Matthew 18 and it says, before you come and give your gift, leave it there, go and reconcile and come back. Meaning that the one who offended you, you go to that one. But we say, no, I'm waiting for them to come to me. And this chapter packs a punch, you know, really, because this is what God's trying to do. He's trying to get Jonah outside of himself, outside of his hate, of his anger, to see that the worst people in the story is not the Ninevites. The most hard-hearted, hateful person in this story is Jonah. And so God's trying to see and tell him that just because you are part of the covenant people who's supposed to reach out and bless the nations, this doesn't excuse your religious hypocrisy. Because you're just as broken and misguided as them. Don't you see that I'm concerned about them and the animals as well? And that's the end of the book. And what does this mean for you and me today? It's the fact that God loves my enemy. And some of us hear that and we think that's okay. I can swallow that, that God loves my enemy. And I can deal with the fact that God loves my enemy, but I'm not sure what he wants me to do with that information. Because I'm cool if God loves my enemy and he forgives them, but I sure hope that he doesn't expect me to forgive them and love them as well. 
And this is crazy because this is the fundamental issue of the gospel, forgiveness, right? Forgiveness for your enemies. This is what happened on the cross. This is what Jesus did at the cross. And so it's exactly what Jesus talked about, forgiveness. And this is what Jonah 4 is about because Jesus put it in this way, Luke chapter 6, verse 27 and 28. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. And as Christians, we respond to these teachings of Jesus in amazing ways. Because we read it and we wonder, did Jesus really mean that? Because to be a follower of Jesus is something totally different. You read these words and you, you think that, how can I do this, especially with a fresh wound? But you see, all of us, we make life a train wreck. All of us. All of us. Some of us are very proud that I don't do as much damage as the next person. Right? I didn't kill anyone. I didn't steal from them. I didn't do this and that. So I'm a little better than someone else. But God's response is the same to both those who are like Jonah and those who are like the Ninevites. He is gracious. He's compassionate. He's slow to anger. And he's abounding in loving kindness. And he loves to relent from sending fire from heaven. And so Jonah ends with God letting him know. Jonah, you've got no high ground to stand on. To start telling me who I can show my grace to. And who I should not. Because all of us, whether you think you are holy and I think I'm holy, all of us are enemies with God. Some of us are very blind to this fact. And it's not easy to, to hear this and to say this because there's a real hurt right here. There's a real pain. And some of us hurt each other and we're sitting here this morning. But if there's one place in the world where the train of retribution must stop, it's those people that gather around the cross of Jesus. Not because we are better than other people, but because the one on the cross showed his grace to me as well. And we've been treated by a God who is so compassionate. And you know, this happens to us with our enemies, you know. An enemy is someone who in a case like Jonah, it's a group of people who have wronged you or somebody that you love, that you care about. And you can broaden this to include people who are annoying or are toxic. And you just can't deal with them, and that's okay. And I'm not talking about people who've, who've hurt people, who've abused them, who've, who've killed them, who've, who've done atrocious things. You need separation, right? But what do you do with those emotions of repulsion? What do you do with that? That's difficult to forgive from a distance. But what do I do with those feelings? Do I clench my fists and say, I would rather die than live with a God like you? who can forgive someone like that after what they've done to me and my loved ones. You see, most of us, we, when we are wounded, we tend to fixate on the one thing that was did wrong to us. Okay. And so, sometimes we take this complex human being and we narrow it down to, to that thing that they did wrong to me. So if someone lied about me, I've got the story and I play the movie in my mind and I see this person 
when I lay at night looking at the ceiling, there's that liar. And I play that movie so many times over that afterwards the person has a forked tongue coming out and I've forgotten their name. And when I see them come in the street to me with my friends, I'll say, here comes that liar. So I reduce someone to the wrong that they've done. And then of course, because they wronged me, I tend to paint myself in the opposite picture. And I end up with Jonah chapter 4, where he's so blind to the fact that the line of good and evil goes down the middle of everyone, that he thinks that everyone else is the problem. And so what Jesus did all the time was to deconstruct the whole concept of an enemy. And he says that all of you contributed to this mess. Some people are more messed up, and they mess up in different ways, but all of us have messed up. We've made ourselves enemies with God, and Paul says this, while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, God reconciled us. And we forget that the ground is level in front of the cross. At the cross, everyone receives grace and mercy. And the point of the gospel is that none of us get to declare that. And so what is the, the, the punchline of Jonah chapter 4? What, what is the message? What is the gift of an enemy? The punchline is that this story isn't about God and the Ninevites. It's about the relationship that God has with His covenant people. Right? It's about God trying to open their eyes of the special called out people to open their hearts to see how messed up they are and how much they need His grace even more than anyone else. I mean, Jesus walked on this earth and the very special called out people tried to kill Him every chance they got. Enemies of God. And so God intentionally forces Jonah to come in contact with his enemy. He tries to run, but God brings him to his enemy. Not by accident, but because he wants to teach Jonah something. Because you're a prophet. And just think about this, everyone. How many of you have a difficult person, an enemy, a toxic person in your life, and you think, you know, I'd be able to follow Jesus so much more better if this person was not around? Like how, have you ever prayed that God removes someone? Just take them away. Life would be great without them. Anyone? And Jonah comes and he flips this whole script and he teaches, could it be that that person is in your life precisely as a divine invitation for you and me to grow and mature in our experience of God's grace? Not just receiving it, but showing God's grace to someone else. Not just mentally accepting it, but letting God's grace flow through you. Could it be that that's the next step of your growth as a Christian? Because enemies have a gift. You know, you've got friends. Friends are your friends because they ignore your flaws or they look over it. They really tell us what's wrong with you. That's why they are friends. But enemies are like a mirror. You see, where a friend will hesitate to tell you, an enemy will not hesitate to tell you where you are wrong. That's the gift of the enemy. And I think this is what God is trying to do with Jonah in chapter 4. And so today, as we go home, 
We've got homework, all of us. So take a blank piece of paper when you go get home, because it shouldn't be done here, because your enemy might be sitting right next to you. <laughs> take a blank piece of paper or open your notes app in your phone. Go to Jonah chapter 4 and get the person in your mind that is your enemy, right? If you've got more than one enemy, get more paper or open more, right? Get that person in your mind and write down every character trait that you hate about them. Just write to your heart content. Everything that makes you ticked, hot with anger and fuming like Jonah. Just write, get it all out and it sounds fun, right? It sounds fun, right? List everything that you hate. They're selfish, they're careless, they're greedy, they don't care about other people. Just write it to your heart's content. And then when you're done writing, don't throw that piece of paper away. Don't burn it, don't post it or don't read it to them. Stop, then you look at that list, and then you pray, and you recognize that you are in God's presence. And then line by line, you go through each thing that you wrote down, and you ask yourself one question. Have I ever displayed the same kind of behavior? Have I ever? And you know what I mean. And then it's just a matter of whether you're going to be like Jonah or not. I've never been selfish before. I've never been careless. I've never been greedy. I've never put myself in front of others. Really? The first step in loving your enemy is recognizing the common humanity and brokenness that we all share. This is what God was trying to do with Jonah. And he says to him, don't you see Jonah? Shouldn't I care about people who are misguided like the Ninevites? Could it be that that person is in your life precisely because God is inviting you into a deeper experience of His grace for you and me? Could it be? Like the book ends with a question. The question is for us to answer. God bless you.